All right. So I'm John Sparrow. This is the Midcoast Maine podcast, and I'm sitting across the table from Sam Patton, um, who I don't really know. And uh, I first learned about him because Reed Brower wrote a kind of an inter- an interesting introduction, one that I had never uh, seen him write before, which was asking the readers of the Village Soup uh, to, you know, give Sam all the uh, room and space that he needed or wanted to, you know, um, you know, to be part of the Village Soup uh, writing team. And um, and so, so far, Sam has written several pieces uh, uh, for them and they've all been very interesting. Um, but uh, what m- made me interested in Sam was the fact that um, he he needed an introduction and that kind of caught me off guard. Um, I know Reed tends to be pretty liberal uh, and so you know, I figured, oh, Sam's going to have a different kind of view of the world. And so um, and so that made me interesting. Uh, so, Sam, welcome to this podcast. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, so I grew up, my father um, is a very conservative man. I uh, grew up in a kind of a Republican household where back when he would put Bush signs on the lawn, they would get ripped down mm-hmm. on Pearl Street. Everyone's freaking out in this climate now um, about, you know, Biden or Trump signs being being ripped down and I guess it's a class C crime, you know, $500 fine or whatever. I'm learning all of that. But that that had been going on in the 80s and 90s to my parents' house ever since I can remember. Well, I, I had sort of the opposite experience where I'm kind of the Alex P. Keaton in my family. Okay. And uh, everyone in my family has always been a Democrat. Oh, okay. And they've always wondered whether I got dropped as a child or how I ended up as a Republican. But the, the sign thing is I, I worked on George W. Bush's 2000 camp pain. And uh, we had his father, George H.W. Bush, put up a sign in Walker's Point in Kennebunkport. And when he hammered it in, he hammered it in an extra few times. And he said, so those kids can't take it. And that was back in 2000. So we're, we're, we're doing the same things, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I grew up here in Camden. And I think you spent some time growing up here in Camden. I did indeed. I went to Camden Rockport High School I graduated from in 1989. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. So you were just a couple years uh, before my brother Jeff actually I think he graduated in 91 or 92 so you might have actually even had some crossover with my brother I I, I may well have yeah uh, okay um so um how much time uh did you spend growing up here in Camden oh ever since I I moved here when I was seven so in second grade so I grew up in Camden um I did go away to school for a few years but other than that uh I Camden was my home right up until the time I went to college. And then I came back here after college and worked for the Camden Herald uh, as a reporter covering uh, the five towns. And it was uh, it was a great first job out of school. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, So growing up here, I don't know what your impression was. My impression, especially with a father so strongly Republican, was that um, that we did not have necessarily a lot of uh, political allies here. And uh, the perception, at least for me, was that the area was a bit more liberal. And um, and so I always felt a little bit, um, I don't want to say alienated, but just cautious about sharing my political views. 
Well, I, I, I can understand that. I saw yesterday Steve Betts had a piece in the Courier-Gazette talking about the political landscape of the Mid-Coast in terms of the numbers and the, the uh, registration of Republican to Democrat to Independent. And the numbers certainly bear that out. But at the same time, Linda Curtis Braun was a longtime state senator uh, uh, as a Republican, fairly conservative Republican, representing Camden. Uh, and there were no, a number of others uh, throughout the period that I was growing up. So I think it's it's gone back and forth and it's it's changed over time. What um, what uh, kind of led you to, um, you know, the Republican Party or or to maybe a more conservative kind of viewpoint? Well, that's uh, that's a good question, and it's one that has my parents scratching their heads a lot. Um, it's basically my belief in limited government. Okay, and I'm uh, I used to be skeptical of what government could achieve, and now I'm uh, now I'm uh, more or less convinced that you know the more governments involved in our lives, the uh, the the less well things turn out. I think that was an old Bill Buckley uh, firing line. It was one of the questions was you know is government the problem. And they, they explored that theme. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, government is filled with many people who are well-intentioned. And I think there are many important functions that government does in our lives. And, you know, we should have fire stations. Uh, we should have police. Uh, we should take care of the most vulnerable in society. But when government gets too involved, I think that problems follow. And so um, that conviction kind of... Um, about when did you come to that conviction? That's a good question. I think I, I went to the Democratic State Convention in while I was still in college. So I became a Republican, I guess, while I was in college. I worked as an intern for Joe Brennan, who was a Democrat, congressman, former governor. And uh, then I uh, found myself very appealed uh, to Bill Cohen, who was then a senator, and he was um, what you would call today a, a rhino or a Republican in name only. Sure. But I think that's uh, Bill Cohen, Olympia Snow, Susan Collins. Uh, there's a consistency in Maine Republicans that's been a little bit different than the, the national uh, Republican stereotype, so to speak. Um, and uh, that's that's been the Republicanism that I have uh, identified with. So, so it's not really social conservative. I'm not. I, I don't consider myself a social conservative. Well, I, I may of, have I, some personal views that yeah, are socially yeah, yeah. conservative, right. but I don't believe the government should enforce those. Okay. So, yeah, because I'm thinking more like um, Olympia Snow and Susan Collins would typically not align themselves with um, you know social conservatism in, in terms of public, pu public policy. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, okay. So, so in some ways, I mean, that would put you on a libertarian kind of framework in, in some sense. I would, yeah. I used to have a, 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 a vague distrust of government, and that sort of uh, hardened and become more fact based over time. But uh, I, I, the, the thing about libertarians that I, you know, I sometimes wonder how realistic they are. I, getting back to the fire station and the post office, and you know, the fundamental aspects of government service that we've come to rely on. Uh, you know, do libertarians discount those too much? Right. Uh, is it a realistic uh, philosophy? But you know. That question aside, I, I probably point more in that direction than any other. That's the joke about libertarians, that they can never form a coalition because they have such diverse <laughs> views that they're just not able to. Which is sometimes a good thing. But uh, I guess so. Right. Except I, when you have to get organized. Right. You know? Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So um, 
So you, uh, so after doing reporting work, you, you, how did you launch into getting more involved in politics? I actually got involved in politics here in Camden uh, through a guy who ran at the time Coast One Hundred Two Point Five Radio. Oh yeah, his name was Kevin Keogh. Yeah, and he was running for Congress, and he asked me to be his press secretary. And this is probably a, a, an early sign of my trouble with politics in that I continued to, I kept my job as a reporter for the Camden Herald and worked as his press secretary. Oh, amazing. <laughs> with, with the rationale that I wasn't covering state politics, I that see. my beat at the Camden Herald was the sewer board, the school board, sure. the planning board, sure. um, and that uh, I wasn't covering state politics and therefore it was okay. Now, Maine Media Watch disagreed and they they dedicated part of a, a segment to that conflict of interest. Uh, I was I posed an ethical question to the main media watch uh, early on, and uh, you know I guess you can raise questions whether you know a working uh, reporter can be a press secretary. But then again, the media has changed quite a bit in the last thirty years. Okay, so yeah. you got started really young. Uh, that was yeah, just fresh out of school. That's amazing. And then from there, I, I, you know, I did a little reading into your bio, and from there, you know, you worked for Susan Collins. Is that correct? I worked for Susan when she ran for governor in 1994. Okay. And then again when she ran for Senate in 1996. And what did you do for her? I was her uh, initially her press spokesman, and then I was her finance director okay. when she ran for Senate, which is uh, more quantifiable. At the end of the day, you can you can count your success more specifically than. Uh, the media, it's always, it's always fluid. Yeah. Did you, um, did you study politics in school or what was your, what was your major? I studied, uh, American government and international relations. Okay. So you were kind of gearing yourself for this all along. I mean, in, in a sense of like you, you knew you wanted to be in politics or at, at some level. I, I, I yeah, I did. I think from a fairly early stage, uh, we didn't have super competitive school elections, so I wasn't involved at, at the high school level. But uh, shortly after that, I did get quite involved in politics. And what at the time would you say would have been your, I guess, what did you see in politics that like like wet your whistle, so to speak? Well, I saw another world, um, and I saw sort of a, a broader world and an ability to connect with uh, people that I didn't know, um, and sort of to get beyond. When you grow up in, you know, we're a, a relatively small town, Very. what are we, six, 7,000 people. So uh, you don't really get any sense living in Camden who lives in Lewiston, or who lives in Aroostook, or who lives in Biddeford, right? Um, so that early on was very interesting to me to get a broader sense of the state and who else was uh, a Mainer, and to travel around and to really get to know the state a little bit. Um, so for me, that was uh, that was fun. It was educational, and also uh, you know a, a sense of uh, community service. I felt that you know I I had studied politics in school. Uh, I had worked on Capitol Hill as an intern, uh, you know, sort of as a as a volunteer uh, while I was a student. So I figured it was a good career choice. How did you um, how did you find uh, working with some of these um, candidates? Obviously, you would get to know Susan Collins fairly well. Well, I think that uh, you know all politicians are different uh, as individuals, but they have similar characteristics. Uh, not just you know around the state or around the country, but around the world. People who are drawn to politics uh, 
are often interested in people, um, and oftentimes they spend so much energy uh, meeting with people, dealing with people, that they can be a little bit difficult to deal with in the back office. Uh, and I think that's a common thing with all politicians. And you learn, uh, you learn what the needs of the politician are, uh, and you learn you know, how they recharge their batteries. Uh, and then you, you find ways in which you can uh, be practically helpful uh, to them, whether it's with policy, whether it's with finance, whether it's with media. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, the, the, I, I, a friend told me once, the more you get to know most politicians, the less you like them. <laughs> and uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't always hold true. Sometimes it holds true. But uh, wherever you have a situation where somebody's projecting an image, uh, you always have to ask yourself, uh, is this the, the real image? And um, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So it's, it's interesting. There's a parallel there to, ce- to, to celebrity uh, a little bit. Uh, I read this morning uh, that Ellen DeGeneres just had her first show coming back after some scandal or something. And she, you know, she was basically outlining that same phenomenon. It's like, I am an actress, you know, I played a straight woman, I'm obviously a gay woman, and I, you know, I'm not that good an actress, but I'm okay, but I, I can't stand up here 17 years and fake this in front of you, so here are some of my flaws, here's why you like me, like, let's move forward or not, kind of deal. Well, I think today, right now, uh, at this moment in our country, uh, authenticity is more of a commodity than it's ever been. And I think it's the perception of authenticity. What people see as real is much more appealing now, even with the flaws, than that perfectly quaffed image that we had 20, 30 years ago of the, you know, the, the executive director of the Chamber of Commerce with their perfect hair and their perfect positions and not offending anyone. Uh, I think our image has changed a lot from that time to what we have now as a political model. And I think authenticity has a lot to do with that, whether it's real authenticity like, you know, what is Ellen really like, or whether it's a perception of authenticity. Um, but still, I think that's something that, you know, as Americans, we're sort of obsessed with. We saw that, obviously, with Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. And he, um, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about him exactly, but he he was um, a breath of fresh air for a lot of people and for and then obviously for the opposition, he, you know, he represented the worst uh, possible threat to the type of civility that they, the type of, uh, um, how do you say, faux civility maybe that we were used to. He's, yeah, it's hard to find the exact words to describe Trump, but I do believe that he is part of a natural process in our country and we can't go around to our TED Talks and to our, you know, South by Southwest conferences and talk about the glory of disruption and then be shocked when we get a disruptive politician. I think that, you know, this is all consistent. And in a way, it challenges us to, uh, you know, better understand what we believe. And it puts people in a position where they have to think, which I think is good. Ultimately, yes, there's a lot of reaction, and I think we've seen a lot of reaction. Trump is a product of reaction, and he creates reaction. But beyond the reaction, uh, I think that's where the solution is ultimately going to be. So after Susan Collins, you worked uh, for George W. Bush? 
I did. Uh, uh, Susan gave me as a uh, uh, indentured servant to the Bush campaign, <laughs> and uh, I coordinated the Bush campaign in Maine in 2000. Okay. And uh, it was it was an it was an interesting experience. What is uh, what's involved in coordinating a state campaign for president? Well, what's involved is uh, a lot of logistical things, making sure that you've got people knocking on doors, making sure that people get their signs. Signs are always very important. Uh, uh, All the way to organizing events. Uh, Then Governor Bush came to Maine a couple times. We had then Secretary Dick Cheney come with his family for a a uh, pre-election convention. Uh, we've had a number of other visitors coming through the state. So dealing with the media, talking to different groups. I remember going to talk to a group up near Ellsworth of union workers, and I was the designated uh, Bush uh, speaker at this group. And nobody wanted to see me or hear from me because I think pretty much everyone in the room had made up their mind. But still, for me, it was it was kind of interesting driving up to Ellsworth and talking to a group of people that were, you know, initially pretty hostile and I probably wasn't going to change any of their minds but at least there was some interface and at least they had uh, some interaction with the other side and uh, I enjoyed that I don't know if they did so when um, when you're doing a a work like that um, there's going to be obviously you know you're a professional and um, but there's obviously going to be some interesting overlap between um, the fact that you're the reason you were a Republican was because of limited government and someone like Bush, you know, did have, let's say, a couple of social conservative like talking points. Mm-hmm. I mean, touchstones. Um, how did you find campaigning on things or pushing things that weren't necessarily, you know, the reason you were there? Well, I think one thing that you realize quickly in politics, uh, and I don't know what it's like with this generation, but with my generation, it's not about you. It's about the candidate. And the sooner you learn that, uh, the more successful you're going to be. But you couldn't obviously, or maybe you could, I don't know, you tell me, but you couldn't um, take a position where or work for a person that had radically like... Um, different views from you so much that they opposed your core beliefs. Or maybe you could, I don't know. I think that it is possible. Yeah. I'm, I can't think of an example where uh, I had that sort of a radical contrast. Sure. But I've certainly worked for people who had different beliefs in some areas than yeah. I did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one has to uh, understand their beliefs. And uh, if you're going to work at, for a client, uh, you have to give the client the prerogative to have their beliefs and be fair about it and represent them as fairly as you can. When you were working for some of these campaigns, did you find that some of their positions actually changed you? Or did, were you, or was that just a different kind of thing? Was this kind of a work-life, home-life kind of thing? I, I constantly challenge my own positions. Um, so uh, certainly, yeah, there have been times when uh, candidates have made me wonder if I'm too liberal or if I'm too conservative um, and whether or not I really know as much about an area as I think I know. Um, so I think those are, you know, those are good challenges to have um, because one's opinion is, you know, I don't believe opinion, opinion should be fixed or written in stone. I think right. they can change or, as politicians say, evolve over time. 
Now, uh, what's the current state of of the Republican Party in Maine right now? Like this, this I've I've grown up as a Republican in Maine. Sorry, my phone's going off. I've grown up as a Republican uh, in a Republican household, I should say. Technically, never been registered a Republican, um, but uh, but I don't know the state of of Maine Republican politics. Well, I think that the Republican Party in Maine has not been strong for a while. And to the extent that there's been a strong Republican Party, it's been political leaders who have created their own organizations. And we've seen that with Olympia Snow. Uh, we've seen that uh, with Bill Cohen. And we've, we saw it with Paul LePage. Now, that was a different type of Republican. But, uh, you know, again, the LePage Republicans, I would, I would say, pretty much dominate the party right now. Um, that's not necessarily the type of Republican that I would consider myself, but it is, uh, you know, it, it, it does represent you know, at least a third of the state. What would you characterize as a LePage Republican or what were some of the markers? Well, uh, some of the things that I would be, uh, you know, that, that would kind of cause my concern would be some of the anti-immigration uh, language uh, and some of the xenophobia um, that I've heard. Now, maybe some of that's been out of context. We do have an immigration problem in the country. We need to deal with it. We need to deal with it honestly. Uh, but I, you know, get concerned whenever I hear one group being singled out over another. Um and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of new to Maine right now. I'm coming back to Maine, so I'm rediscovering. Yeah. Uh, the party has changed a good deal since I was last here. It used to be that there were, you know, sort of Bill Cohen, Olympia Snow type uh, leaders. Uh, right now, Susan Collins is the last Republican in New England. And given how tight the election is, you know, we don't know if she's still going to be there in two months. So I think that it's a very, you know, the main Republican, uh, uh, the picture of a main Republican is changing. And I think that's, you know, the, the picture of a national Republican is changing, too. Uh, and it will certainly change a lot after November, whether Trump wins or loses. Donald Trump certainly, I mean, shifted the meaning of Republican in a lot of ways? Is that a fair way to put it? I think in, in some ways, uh, yes, but he's also achieved a number of Republican goals uh, that he pledged to do in his campaign. Um, so that makes him uh, very popular uh, within the party and his, his commitment to appointing conservative judges, for instance. Uh, that was a promise that he made before the election, and it's something that he's stuck to right up until the present. So with core conservatives, that's very important. Do you have a sense of uh, where he is with uh, the vacancy? Well, just what I see on the news, I think he's determined to fill the vacancy as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, so uh, after after working uh, for uh, George W. Bush, uh, where where did you head off to next? Well, after working in politics in Maine, I went down to Washington for a little while and uh, working on Capitol Hill, and then I just got more and more interested in in foreign policy and uh, how I could ways I could be directly involved in foreign policy. What was your interest there? Just the broader world in general, 
And uh, so I'm seeing a theme here, right? You start off in Camden and you kind of look out and you see other, you know, other towns, other districts, other areas of Maine. You, you, you kind of play that game for a while. Well, I think that's the main tradition. If you if you okay. look at the coast yeah. and you look up and down the coast, whether you're in Searsport or Camden or Rockport, Rockland, you see, uh, you know, ship captains houses that were built by uh, men who would travel the world in ships. And, you know, they were lucky enough to have wives who would wait for them back at home and, you know, stand in the widow's walk looking out for their ship to come back. So I do think it's a main tradition to be interested in the broader world. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I got very involved in foreign policy and very interested in foreign policy before September 11th. Uh, I remember I was working uh, for Senator Collins on, on Capitol Hill, and I was waiting to get my hair cut in the Senate barber shop. And there were two guys ahead of me. Uh, the senators have their own barber shop where they have discounted haircuts. And there were two guys in, uh, in, in front of me talking about building democracy in Mongolia. And I thought, geez, who the heck does that? And so I was actively eavesdropping on them up until the point I couldn't uh, control myself anymore. And I injected myself in their discussion. I said, you know, who are you and who builds democracy in Mongolia? And they told me about an organization called the International Republican Institute. There's also a National Democratic Institute that did that and works around the world in transitional democracies. And so I uh, immediately looked to see where I could sign up. And within a month, I was working for them. Wow. So when I hear uh, building democracy in X, um, some of the thoughts that flash or some of the images that flash into my head are, um, you know, George W. Bush talking about um, exporting democracy or bringing democracy to Iraq mm -hmm. and the Middle East. And um, it, it, the, you know, I'm just going to throw a couple words out here that come to mind, um, you know, the the neoconservative movement yes and um so can you kind of talk about that a little bit i'm a recovering neoconservative <laughs> oh, and gosh. i i shared a lot of those views that uh america it was part of our mission to spread uh democracy and respect human freedom around the world and because our experiment in democracy had been largely successful. Uh, it was it was our obligation to share our experience with other countries and to show how we were able to achieve what we achieved. Now that's different than telling countries you have to be a democracy. And there's a big difference between the rhetoric of George W. Bush after September 11th and Donald Trump's inaugural speech in which he very pointedly said, we're not going to tell you what to do, mm. which I think was appealing to certain leaders around the world. Um, but I chose uh, the former Soviet space initially, and I was the Russia desk officer first for, uh, for IRI, and then uh, went to Moscow and ran their office and their operation in Russia for three years, uh, interfering with Russian politics, so to speak, um, and then volunteered to go to Iraq after the invasion. So I spent a year in Baghdad uh, helping the Iraqis prepare for their first election between 2004 and 2005. So if we could back up just for a second. So how um, how do you understand the um, the roots of the notion that we should we should have? I think things have shifted, but we should have um, 
spread democracy in this very active kind of encouraging way. What, what are the roots of that? I think it's part of the American messianic. Uh, I mean, it's we are a nation that uh, you know believes we rightly or wrongly that uh, we're exceptional, that we have had a positive experience in uh, creating a country, and uh, and perfecting or working on our imperfections. Uh, sometimes slowly, sometimes too slowly, but addressing them, and that this creates a model for other countries. This isn't the same as arrogance or saying that we're better than any other country, uh, but our movies are sell more than any other country's movies. Our entertainment sells, and you know, people want to move to this country. They want to visit America. They want to come here. So those are signs of popularity. And those are signs that America has something that other countries want. And at its essence, part of that is our, is our system of freedom and independence. I think that's something that people respect about the United States. And yet you describe yourself as a recovering neocon. Uh, what does that mean for you? Well, I think that uh, every movement has uh, its extremes and its over-exuberance. And uh, the idea of bringing democracy to the Middle East was ambitious, to put it nicely. Uh, when I left Russia in 2004 to go to Iraq, uh, a Russian opposition leader said to me, are you crazy? You think you're going to bring democracy to them? We're a Christian nation and we can't get democracy right. How on earth are, the, are, are they going to do it in the Middle East? Mm. Um, but I'd have to say, if you look at Iraq today, uh, it's a there's a lot of violence and there are many problems. Uh, there's still a huge problem of foreign interference, whether it's Western or Iranian interference. But the democratic uh, institutions that started about 15 years ago have largely held. And uh, in that sense, uh, it may have had a positive effect on some of the countries around it. And we did see some positive effects. We saw them uh, in Lebanon. We saw them in Egypt. We saw them even in, in Libya and elsewhere in the, in the Arab world uh, after the invasion of Iraq. Now, the cost in human lives and uh, in destruction, was it worth it? Probably not. Uh, however, um, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was an extraordinary time. And I think President Bush, to judge him, you have to look at the choice that he was looking at at that moment. And um, you know, whether or not he would say it was a mistake to invade Iraq, that would be a question he'd have to answer. So um, did, did George W. Bush get um, kind of brought into neoconservatism in, during his run for president, or was that something that he had encountered? I think he did. I think that uh, there's a foreign policy elite in Washington, which is part of the problem. And I think uh, when Bush was elected, I got the sense that uh, the people who were filling the positions in his administration in foreign policy and the national security establishment were initially people from his father's world and 
then the neocons, uh, whether it was Dick Cheney or Condoleezza Rice or Paul Wolfowitz, these were people that he could more call his own than the Brett Scowcrofts and, you know, sort of the elder statesmen of his father's administration. Uh, so I think that it, by accident, the neocons and Bush uh, uh, sort of aligned at a particular point in history. Interesting. So, okay, so this finds you... Uh, in, in terms of your, you know, personal uh, history and career, this finds you in Russia. Yes. And uh, what what were you doing over there? What were you? What was your day to day? I was I was working with IRI, the International Republican Institute, to train political parties and politicians for elections. Uh, and so my focus, my interest, was largely with the opposition. There was also a pro-Putin party. Uh, there were the communists. Uh, the communists never sought our help, uh, which, you know, probably makes sense. Uh, they, they had their game down, yeah, maybe. <laughs> the pro-Putin people were interested in how to set up the balloons for a convention. They wanted to know how it looked, and they were very interested in how things looked. And then there were, uh, you know, as we said about libertarians arguing amongst themselves, you had the uh, liberal democratic parties, small liberal democratic parties, unfortunately, arguing with themselves. And uh, by the time I left Russia, none of them were able to get above 5% on their own, and they wouldn't work together. And that's often a problem uh, in any country where you have opposition forces. How much of your work was on policy and how much of it was just on optics? Well, it was, I'd say the other area other than policy and optics was sort of the practicalities of running campaigns. I see. So we uh, conducted polls in Russia uh, and would interpret the results of those polls and share them with different political parties and help the political parties use the data to craft messages where they were interested. Sometimes they were interested, sometimes they weren't. Some people trusted polls, some people didn't trust polls. When I uh, sort of, by the time I got to Russia, there was already a political consulting class. But let's say five years before that, you were talking about witch doctors and psychiatrists and people who would hypnotize voters. And, you know, these were the political consultants of the early 90s. And then it evolved into a, uh, an industry and there were certain tricks and, and uh, uh, you know, different technologies. They would call it political technologies. We, we usually don't. We think of politics as more of a uh, arts and sciences, but uh, they, they would call it political technologies. And uh, that's, in a way, that's how they still practice in a lot of these countries. There's a difference between Russia and Ukraine and, you know, Moldova and Georgia uh, in terms of their political systems. And some are more free and some are less free, but hopefully they're all going in the same direction. So what is the U.S. interest in, in uh, or at least your the organization that you worked for? I mean, what's the, what's, there must be some national interest in getting involved with these folks. Well, it's been said that two countries that have McDonald's don't go to war with each other. And by the same token, (laughs) two countries that are democracies are less likely to go to war with each other. So by that standard, uh, there's a national security interest in that it it, uh, diminishes uh, the, the likelihood of war. Um, and it increases uh, the chances for dialogue between countries. From your perspective, I mean, um, what is the relationship between Russia and the United States as you encountered it? I saw a lot of uh, anger and resentment 
uh, on which the, on which side on the Russian side okay. um, about the loss of the Cold War okay. and the humiliation that followed for uh, the Russian people in terms of their economy uh, uh, became very bad for a while and most people suffered a great deal and a very small number prospered and uh, they came to be known as the oligarchs. Um, so there was a there was a huge disparity in wealth, and uh, also in political freedom. Uh, that changed over time as well. In the time of Yeltsin, from 1991-92 until 1999, for that that decade essentially, there was sort of wild wild crony capitalism. Um, and then Putin came along and installed order at the cost of freedom, and with that came corruption. And a state that, uh, you know, for over 700 years, the Russians have been ruled essentially by the uh, secret services and by their their uh, secret police. And so, in a way, the system they have now isn't that different than the czars of, you know, centuries ago. Putin seems like a very interesting man. I mean, he, he's, he's well-spoken. He's intelligent. I mean, uh, very... Uh, very you could contrast him very much to our you know our current president who's you know speaks uh, much more from the hip and in very short sentences there was a song when putin first became president of russia there was an effort to legitimize him and create pr behind him and there was a song that was made popular on russian radio uh in which a woman sang i want a man like putin <laughs> one who one who won't get drunk one who won't beat me, one who won't leave me. So those were the three priorities. Won't get drunk, won't beat me, won't leave me. And so the idea of Putin as one who was sober, who was in control, and had uh, uh, a sense of commitment to the country, was a patriot in the old sense of the KGB being the patriotic shield and sword defending the Russian people from all sorts of threats and dangers, uh, he summoned a lot of that up. And I think that continues to be the reason why he enjoys fairly high popularity in Russia. And so you were working for campaigns that were trying to, what, regionally oust that idea? We were trying. We were trying to... uh, build support among liberal Democrats, which I think in Russia probably maxes out at about 20%. Um, But when you cut that 20% into smaller pieces, it becomes very small. Um, But there is, you know, there have been reformers in Russia for before the uh, communist revolution. And the problem is that they tend to be in the cities and among the elite and not in the countryside. How would you um, contrast uh, Donald Trump and Putin in terms of, uh, you know, policy and and politics and in terms of um, I'm I'm thinking, you know, the way you describe the authority, the use of authority that Putin has. um, Mm -hmm. I I know that a lot of um, liberal folks in this country would want to say that Trump wields his power that way. I haven't seen that. I think in a way it's the opposite, yeah. that uh, with with extreme state power in the way that Putin enjoys it, uh, that kind of power is silence. That kind of power is what people are afraid to do, so don't do, um, as opposed to Trump where there's a lot of noise and there's constant noise and he's constantly making noise and threatening things and saying things. Uh, but I think there's a big difference between uh, the style of Trump and Putin. 
Um, but in terms you know, of the execution, too, I mean... In terms of the execution, the demonization of the media is a concern. Um, and that's something that is consistent in both countries, except that uh, Putin took over the media and Trump just complains about the media. So that, you know, that is a substantive difference between the two. Uh, Trump clearly has uh, a fondness for Putin and for authoritarians in general that's puzzling and uh, I think concerning to a number of people. Um, you know, these. These people are not role, role models. Uh, Vladimir Putin is not somebody who I see as a future world leader. Um, but our, our politics are also very transactional. And it's not just a question of spreading human freedom or East versus West. Uh, it's also who's not China? And what's the bigger threat to the United States right now, China or Russia? And I think it's pretty clear that China, uh, you know, the Russians don't own us. The, the Russians can't censor our media. Uh, the Chinese can. Uh, the Russians don't tell our NBA teams how to behave. The Chinese do. So uh, I think there's a huge scale of difference in terms of what presents a greater threat to the United States and what's been whipped up into sort of the perception of a threat. Yeah, so this is where, I mean, Trump got himself entangled with um, I mean, I guess they called it Russia Gate, right? I mean, yep. Trump, Trump got himself entangled with this thing for months and months. Well, I'd say that the Russia Gate got itself entangled around Trump. Okay. Uh, Trump certainly, in a way, he seemed to invite it uh, by his positive statements about Putin. Um, but I, based on my experience, which unfortunately is is, is a lot more than I'd like it to be. Uh, we didn't see a lot of fire behind the smoke with Russiagate. We saw uh, no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. What we did see was the Russians messing around on the peripheries with our political, our domestic politics. And, you know, we saw some Facebook ad buys. We saw some efforts to get one group stirred up against another group. And, you know, that wasn't nice, that wasn't neighborly, uh, but uh, it also wasn't unprecedented. And, it, and these aren't things that we've never done in other countries. And as somebody who's actively interfered with Russian politics, it's difficult for me to be shocked and appalled by a few Facebook ads. Does everyone, I mean, this? it seems like... Uh it seems like just the thing to do that, uh, you know, these great, uh, it's almost like they have nothing better to do. I mean, these great international powers interfering with each other. Well, I think that it's, uh, you know, there's a long history of countries interfering with each other. And frankly, it's an improvement over invading each other. Yeah. Um, it's in a way it's almost, uh, in, it, you know, if it were done honestly and transparently, it would be more democratic. Now, the problem is it, it wasn't done honestly or transparently. Um, and getting back to Trump and Russiagate, I do think Trump sort of invited some of the criticism and some of the scrutiny. Uh, however, I also think that the media uh, hyped up a situation that the facts later didn't support. And I think, you know, the German writer Goethe said that, you know, the, the, the goal of an investigation isn't to confirm our biases, it's to, it's to get to the actual truth. And, uh, you know, three, four years later, we don't see what we were told we were going to see at the outset. There's not enough there to have warranted it. 
I fear that it started out as a distraction and it grew into an even bigger distraction and it's moved us away from what we should be focusing on. In July of in July and August of 2016, the Clinton campaign was talking more about Russians than they were about how hard it is for a single mother in, in Wisconsin or Michigan to work two or three jobs to take care of her kids, to pay for prescription drugs for her parents, to handle you know the challenges of life in America today. And I think if the Democratic candidate for president were able to uh, effectively give voice to those concerns, there, we wouldn't be talking about Donald Trump right now. Yeah, I mean, they clearly uh, they clearly dropped the ball and played an anti-Trump campaign. And I mean, then we learned that it was the Russians that elected Trump. Right. And then we learned, okay, well, maybe they didn't, but they tried. And, oh, they're trying again. And it, it just seems a bit like a distraction. And it also seems to insult the intelligence of people, uh, you know, who can make their own decisions based on having access to the Internet and finding information. Interesting. Um, so, your own uh, involvement in Russia Gate, um, how did that? How did that even come about? That came about uh, because I was uh, I was called before the Senate Intelligence Committee to talk about a former business partner of mine. At that point, I think he still was a business partner of mine who had worked for Paul Manafort, and uh, Paul was the source of a lot of uh, scrutiny. And um, and then after that encounter, uh, I was contacted by the special counsel's office. And in the course of uh, a lot of back and forth, I uh, learned they were going to charge me for failing to register as a foreign agent. Uh, this is a somewhat arcane law that was passed in the late 1930s in order to keep the Nazis and the Germans from influencing uh, the American political system. Uh, I'm the ninth conviction in American history since wow. World War II. Wow. Paul Manafort was the eighth. Um, so it's not, it's not a... It hasn't been applied much. It hasn't been applied much. <laughs> and if it had K Street in Washington, where all the lobbyists are, would look quite different than it does today. I see, I see. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I did break the law. What, is it, what uh, it does was, it mean that, uh, what does it mean to not register as a foreign agent? I failed to register because my client was a Ukrainian businessman and politician who I was working for in Ukraine. Okay. In the course of my work for him, advising him on Ukrainian politics, okay. I helped him write and place a couple editorial pieces and reach out to some people in the United States. Now, technically, that requires registration under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Okay. Does everybody do it? No. Uh, is that an excuse for not doing it? No. It was a mistake. It was stupid. It was a very costly mistake. Yeah. I should have filled out the form. Um, was there a, I mean, maybe you don't want to get into this. Was there a benefit in not doing it? My client didn't want me to. I see. Uh, and so I was uh, I was bowing to the desires of my client at my own expense, which is a, a useful lesson just in business. Um, but... Uh, yeah, the, the, the purpose of these articles was not to influence American public opinion, but rather to look important back in Ukraine, to say, oh, we were in the Wall Street Journal or USA Today. Mm -hmm. And in Ukraine, that would mean a lot. So uh, we didn't think that we were going to sway American public opinion with one or two editorials. 
However, the law is what the law is. And there must be lots of people who have also not filled out this form. Probably. I don't want to speculate or point the finger at no, others. No, I just mean, but, uh, I just mean, you know. It, it, it just so happened the United States government didn't like my client. Yeah. If my client had been French or if my client had been Brazilian or something else, chances are charges never would have been filed. Uh, do you have a sense of why they didn't like your client? Uh, because it was because my client had before me had hired Paul Manafort. Oh, I see. And had been largely portrayed in the Western media as a quote unquote pro-Russian party. I take objection to that because I think that you have to understand the country of Ukraine and who lives in Ukraine and the fact that more than half the country speak Russian as their uh, everyday language and that that half of the country has felt under siege by the other half of the country in the last 20 years. And so there, there are issues the Ukrainians need to work out in their own political system. Um, I don't think it's fair to call uh, the party that I worked for opposition bloc it was called a pro-Russian party. Uh, they were pro-peace and pro-ending the war, which, uh, you know, being pro-peace and being pro-Russian aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah, it seems like uh, it's very interesting when we label people or parties and uh, the kinds of ideas or insinuations that pr get produced from that, then we can you know, find ourselves in all sorts of trouble. Well, I think we're forced today uh, you know, with the internet and with uh, the exposure to so many different things in the media to form opinions about so many things we don't know about and that labels help. They help us do that more quickly. And so people almost cling to labels as a way of interpreting the confusing world around them. One thing that I've learned talking to so many different kinds of people is um, just even in the last, let's say, two months is that uh, I don't need to form opinions about things. Yeah, it's, it's kind of freeing. It's yeah. very freeing yeah. to not actually have a position on it. And it's, it's not as though I couldn't have a position. It's mm -hmm. not as though I couldn't form one if I wanted to. But... Um, you know, why, why go through the trouble <laughs> in certain circumstances? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Well, it's okay to be wrong too. That's it's true. okay to have a position and to change that position. I mean, there's no law saying that you have to stick to a single position. We like consistency right. and we like to believe we're right, but sometimes circumstances change and, and, uh, you know, sometimes there are new facts. So I think we need to be flexible and that's, you know, that's a challenge like in our country today, more than it's ever been, where people uh, take positions and become very emotional about positions and uh, then take positions about anybody who dis disagrees with them. And that's, that's where I think we're kind of getting off on the wrong track in America right now on both sides in terms of the demonization of the other. And it worries me because that's something that I've seen in countries that have devolved into civil war or even worse, ethnic, uh, ethnic cleansing. So, you know, these are things we don't want in America. Um, you know, it would, be, it would be wise, I think, for everybody to sort of take a step back and be a little more tolerant. Yeah, that's one of the things I've been trying to achieve in these conversations is just um, – for the most part, um, and I actually, I mean, we, and we could get into it. We don't really need to, but I mean, for the most part, I've sat across the table from people with whom I just radically disagree on so much. We probably have mm -hmm. a little bit more in common uh, to, to a certain degree, but, um, but, uh, I've been finding the conversations very refreshing. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, getting into very serious things. I mean, very serious topics that affect people's lives. And, um, 
and just trying to break new ground in the conversation, not to have the same conversations mm-hmm. that you would hear maybe, you know, on the news or the way things are characterized with those same labels being applied to those same sides rehearsed over and over again. And um, and so what I'm what I'm trying to do with these conversations is just to, you know, bring bring out, you know, people's ability to articulate themselves in new ways. Well, I think that, uh, you know, engagement is the key thing. And they say that about social media. I'm not an expert on social media, but I do know that they encourage you to engage people. And engagement is the most important thing. And I think we need more engagement uh, between people of different political views and more discussion. And, you know, Washington was already going off the rails uh, by the time I got there. Um, You know, in the Bush administration, we were already going into a space where Republicans and Democrats socialized differently. And the Republicans would live across the river in Virginia, and Democrats were more likely to be urban in in, in D.C. And uh, that wasn't the way it always was. It's changed over time. It's become much more polarized. And I think that our country suffers from that. Um, I'm hopeful that, you know, I think both parties are going to change. And it's going to depend on what happens in this election. I think that if Donald Trump loses the election, then the Republicans will be the first party to face reform. If the Democrats lose, it won't be possible to blame the Russians a second time. They'll have to, they'll have to accept. Own it. Own it and uh, start over again. Yeah. Because like in business, I mean, you're a businessman. If, if something, if a vendor or an employee or a contractor doesn't perform, you move on to somebody else. But politics is weird because politics allows people who don't perform to stick around. Mm. And uh, there's sort of a lag. And we see that. I, I would have, if I were a Democrat, I would have wanted to see the entire party purged after 2016. But we see a lot of the same people in a lot of the same positions. And frankly, as somebody who's not a Trump supporter, that worries me a great deal. So um, why you've just launched a little interesting note there at the end. Uh, How do you find yourself not a Trump supporter? I'm not a Trump supporter uh, just because I don't like his style. You don't like him? I don't like his style. Okay. I find him fascinating. Oh, okay. (laughs) I find him, uh, you know, as most Americans do, a source of endless fascination. From from the moment I first listened to him when he did that thing going down the escalator, I listened to him on radio driving my son to school, and I hadn't had coffee, and I wasn't fully awake. And I found myself getting drawn in and thinking, geez, this is interesting. Uh, No, I find him fascinating. I don't like his style of, of governance. I don't like his bully style. I don't like his tough guy style. It comes from high school, you know? And there was always that guy in high school who was shoving other people into the locker and everybody looked up to him because he was big and strong. And then after high school, often things changed. Um, That person wasn't necessarily the alpha male uh, because pushing people into lockers was no longer, you know, the way to get ahead. Um, unfortunately, I feel with Trump, I, I see that guy shoving people into lockers. And uh, I just I don't think that's a very good uh, model of, of leadership for our country. One of the things that um, that I noticed about Trump is that when he's you know trying to make a deal, quote unquote, he um, he bluffs big. 
Mm-hmm. It's almost every time, you know, he bluffs big and then what he actually and, you know, the, in the response to that from the other side is to negotiate back from that a little bit. But then he just gets what he wants. Well, he's a great salesman. Right. He's a very good salesman. You have to give him that. And fundamentally, that's that's America. That's yeah. what we do. We sell. So that's the thing about Trump. We ha- I have to, I speak for myself, I'm very careful not to disparage Trump, not to call him an aberration, because he's not. He's part of us. He's part of our national fabric, and he's part of who we are. And I, I think that for the first time in a long time, a lot of people in this country who did not feel they were being represented do. And from a democratic standpoint, that's important. So I don't want to delegitimize Trump. I'm not going to say he's not my president. He's not. He is the president. He won the election for at least 40 more days. He's the president and possibly for four more years after that. And until we can deal with things as they are, uh, you know, there's no chance, I think, of the opposition uh, defeating him. So were you disappointed when they went with Joe Biden? I, I was, yes. To be honest, I was disappointed because here's the reason why I was disappointed. It wasn't in Joe Biden. Uh, you know, the poor guy's been around for a while. He's a decent guy. Uh, it was I was disappointed in our political system and our broken political system and the way in which mediocre choices often are uh, the common denominator. So why does mediocrity rise so uh, so well in America? <laughs> I think that's probably a podcast in and of itself. Um, yeah, I just. I don't know. But I mean, before the South Carolina primary, nobody thought Joe Biden really had a chance. And then everybody was just so tired that they just kind of threw their hat in the ring. And uh, I think that things went a certain way and people just settled on Biden. Did you like any of the Democratic candidates? I liked Michael Bloomberg, but I didn't think that he ran a smart campaign I mean, for the he money got, he spent. He got trashed, yeah. For the money he spent, uh, he could have gone about it in a more serious way. Okay. His profile and his tough talk and his business acumen, I think all of those things would have made him a strong candidate if he could have gotten over his arrogance. And They dismantled he, him on that stage, though, I, he, at, at he least to me. He shouldn't have gone onto the stage if he wasn't ready. Right. His, it was his own fault. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there were bits of various candidates that I found interesting. Uh, what I what I didn't like was the fact that the Democratic primary process was more like a pageant. It was like a beauty pageant. It wasn't like a primary process. And I found that I, I feared people weren't taking it seriously. I asked my in-laws a year ago, more than a year ago, who are you supporting? And they said, oh, there are so many wonderful candidates. And I thought, you don't get it. That's not substance. Yeah. That's Not only is it not substance, if, if Democrats don't start coming together now, mm. there's going to be a problem. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I, that's, that's part of our process. Interesting. Uh, but I do think both parties need to reform. And whichever one loses the White House will be the first in line to reform. I saw a note in one of the, I mean, a very, like a one sentence throwaway comment in an, uh, one of the articles that I was reading about you. And... Uh, it said that you were con- you had maybe uh, thought about or considered running uh, for elected office. Well, I think one day I yeah. uh, I, I have thought about it. Yeah. Um, I do think that uh, I'm a felon. 
uh, the first felon was elected to office in the United States in the 1790s. So there is precedent. Don't, don't speak so harshly about yourself. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, I, I, I want to put the facts on the table. Yeah. Um, so that, that, you know, that's not uh, a prohibitor per se. Um, it's, a but heck I, of a, it's a heck of an argument to make, maybe, from a perception but, standpoint. Yeah. But I've only been in Maine uh, this round, even though I grew up here for yeah. a short period of time. Yeah. I've been in Washington in the swamp for 20 years. Yeah. So I think before I ran for anything, I'd have to prove myself and prove myself useful to the people who uh, who live in the state. Sure. Uh, carpet bagging is something nobody likes. So Fair enough. I mean, what does it mean? Uh, you say it very clearly. I mean, what does it mean, really, that you're a felon? I mean, what does that mean? What it means is that uh, I violated, I admitted responsibility for violating a law that is technically a felony, and I accepted my uh, my conviction in the court. Um, You know, what is one felony versus another? I mean, I I I try and be positive, and I look at the 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 gifts that I got out of the process. Uh, I did not have to go to prison, which uh, I'm fortunate for. Although it made me much more sensitive to our criminal justice system and how the system works and how the cards are stacked oftentimes against the defendant. And we talk, you know, I, again, I don't like labels and I don't like words like privilege and sort of identity focus words, but uh, I'd have to admit that I am privileged in the respect that, uh, you know, I've had a pretty uh, comfortable upbringing, come from a nice part of the world here in Camden. Uh, so the type of justice that I received is probably a little different than the type of justice a young man or woman coming from the inner city uh, might get their first time around. And Do you think you were treated with kid gloves? I wasn't, well, I don't think I was treated with kid gloves. I mean, I think that I was uh, prosecuted for a nuclearized parking ticket with the full force and power of the United States government. So in that sense, uh, you know, but then I was speaking in a prison in D.C. at the D.C. jail uh, to, to inmates who were interested in uh, a lecture series. And I was talking a little bit about my experience. And one of them asked me uh, at the end in the question period, they said, it seems pretty clear uh, to us that you're a patriot. How do you reconcile what your country's done to you? And I thought about it for a minute. And, you know, here are all these guys sitting in prison wearing orange jumpsuits. And when we were done, they were going back to their cells. I was going to leave. I was going to leave the prison, go back to my wife, uh, have a nice lunch. And I said, you know, it could have been worse. They could have charged me with treason and they could have killed me. And the room went silent. These are tough guys. You know, these aren't like, you know, mushy guys. Um, The room went silent. And it just, when you have an all-powerful state, anything's possible. And I do think that there are systemic problems with our criminal justice system uh, that, you know, unfairly, uh, certain demographic groups are unfairly prosecuted more, convicted more, more likely to be sentenced to prison for nonviolent crimes. And that's the issue. In 1992, uh, our political forces, Republican and Democrat, made a horrible deal uh, on the crime bill, uh, which increased the size of our prisons exponentially. We went from hundreds of thousands of Americans imprisoned to over two million. And uh, that's just, uh, we're, we're number one in the world for highest per capita incarceration rate. 
which is not something we necessarily want to advertise or export to other countries. Uh, so I think that's something that uh, we need to fix. And these are things I never would have been aware of or sensitive to if I hadn't been through the process myself. Uh, retroactively, did you like some of the Trump uh, or Kushner or whatever work on some of the prison reform that they did? I think that the First Step Act, which Jared Kushner was instrumental in pushing, is important. And I think I hate the word important because people say this is important. That's not important. Okay. What do you mean I by important? I think it's constructive. <laughs> okay. I think it's, as, as its name says, it's a, it's a first step towards reviewing sentencing in nonviolent crimes. And as we, some of the people that Trump has singled out in his State of the Union or even in his, uh, in his acceptance speech at the convention, uh, I've met some of these women like Alice Marie Johnson, who was uh, let out of prison uh, for a nonviolent crime. She was involved in drug trafficking, but it certainly didn't merit life in prison what she did. Uh, and there are other people who have uh, been given enormous sentences for crimes that uh, don't necessarily deserve that. Um, so that's, you know, as a society, uh, if we're going to talk about justice or freedom, we have to look at how we're treating people within our, our penal system, within our criminal system, because, uh, you know, most of these people will reenter society. And do, do we want society to be stronger or weaker as a result? Did you, um, so, so, so I was, yeah, I mean, getting back to the Trump, yeah. I, I have to give Trump credit, technically a lot of that credit goes to Jared Kushner, and the reason is because he would visit his father every week in prison. And because his father was in prison, he had a sense of what prison is, what it does to human dignity, what it does to a person, and what some of the problems are that need to be looked at. And they deserve credit for getting that conversation started. I think it's a bipartisan conversation, uh, but the fact that both sides are talking, I think that's one of the positive things that's come out of this administration. Do you think that uh, Trump represents um, your uh, your interest in being a Republican in the sense of, of, of smaller government, or do you think he's made efforts to increase the size of, of the federal government? Well, I think... The Space Force is obviously a new, uh, is a new government entity. Uh, but then again, the EPA has been pared down to, you know, what, a couple receptionists. So, um, you know, I, I, I think some people might question what the priorities are. Yeah. Um, he seems to be all over the place in some ways. He is all over the He's place. He's not a doctrinaire kind of man, is he? I find the challenge with Trump, it's yeah. a temptation of Trump. Yeah. And I voted, uh, I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for his opponent. Um, and I don't think I'm going to vote for Trump uh, this November. But I have to admit there is a temptation. And that temptation, for me, comes uh, from a common enemy. And the fact that, uh, you know, I think the Russia investigation has a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, my life was destroyed. I mean, yes, I put myself in a position where my life was destroyed. I you put take, yourself in, in I take yeah, I take ahead. responsibility for sure. being in that situation. You at least put yourself in a position where it, if they looked the right way, it could right. have been destroyed. I put myself in a lot of dangerous <laughs> yeah, situations. Risk. And this risk. was one of them. Yeah, I and it. I take full ownership of yeah, that. Yeah, that yeah, said, yeah. I think that we live in an age of narratives and stories that yeah. are 
sometimes more powerful than the facts. Right. And I think we saw that with quote unquote Russiagate. I think we saw that with the confirmation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh in terms of uh, some of the stories that were brought to the level of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Senate floor, which didn't pass scrutiny and which were narrative based, trying to reach a conclusion regardless of the facts. And I it think, did create an emotional yeah. uh, roller coaster yeah. for everyone I, to follow. And so there's a sense of pushing back against this. Yeah. And to the extent that Trump is pushing back against things that seem unfair uh, or double standards, that's appealing to a lot of people. And I think that's really where a lot of his appeal is. And that's where I find the temptation of Trump is, uh, you know, here's a guy who I may not like. Personally, I may not respect some of his personal decisions in terms of his life or some of the words that he used, but he pushes back against a system that is unfair. And I think that that's very powerful emotionally. Uh, and I, you know, sometimes when, if I feel I want to lash out at the people who pushed a certain narrative, I, I feel drawn towards Trump. Um, that said, I don't, I don't see myself voting for him just because his style of leadership, I think, is, is, is not good for the country. When you said uh, the, the, the tempt, when you characterize it as a temptation and you talk about common enemy, mm-hmm. what is the common enemy in your mind? I mean, between you and Trump, I mean, what, what is that common enemy? The swamp, the establishment, the powers that be that have always been. The powers that say, oh, you can't do it this way. That's not the way we do it. And so the disruptive power of Trump, true or false in reality, has been uh, turning Washington, D.C. on its head. And I don't think the political class in America understood how angry the American people are at them. Can you identify the swamp? I mean, are are these ideas? Are these people? Are these um, um, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, think tanks? I mean, what what is the swamp? Well, the swamp is consensus, ultimately. It's a sense of how the city works and how uh, it's an inside joke. I mean, but there are people behind this, aren't there? It's something that the Washington Post advertises itself on radio with the slogan, the Washington Post, if you don't get it, you don't get it. And the impression there for Washington insiders is we get it, they don't. Wink, wink, nod, nod. You're in on it or you're not. You're on the inside or you're on the outside. So that creates a tension in society uh, where if people have been on the inside for too long, why? Why have they been on the inside for too long? And why are, why are these the same people? Why does Congress have a 98% incumbency rate? Why aren't we turning these people out more frequently? Uh, why are the same voices? And these voices get stale over time. Uh, why do we have the same representatives of interest groups? Why are we arguing about the same things over and over again? Um, now, is there some great conspiracy, some sort of Illumina- group of Illuminati that get together and set the agenda? No, it's not, it's not that simple. However, uh, you do have an atmosphere in Washington, D.C., where a lot of people have lived there a long time, don't want to leave, and uh, cling to power. And that's, uh, that's a situation that you know begs change, begs disruption. And I think Trump is part of that. 
Now the question people are going to have to answer in November is, has he delivered? Has he brought change and has the change that he's brought improved things? And I think that's that's an open question. Very nice. Well, we covered a lot. <laughs> um, I really appreciate you coming uh, coming down um, and uh, and speaking with me. I, maybe just one other one other question before I uh, let you go. Um, so, um, where do you find yourself now uh, in terms of what you're you know um, what you're doing with your life and your work and um, and your future? Well, I'm kind of in a process of rediscovery. Um, if I feel that my, if I conclude that my life went off track through politics, uh, then this is the place where I was before I got into politics. So I'm kind of returning to the origin, so to speak, returning to my roots. Uh, I'm writing a column for the Camden Herald and the Courier Gazette and the Republican Journal. And, uh, you know, that, that's where I started out after school. So, um, I, I, I am in that phase of my life, sort of starting a new chapter, uh, and to that end, I'm working on a book. I'm writing a book about it's a it's a fictional book, but it uh, you know some of the plot lines uh, might mirror things I've seen in my life. Sure. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, that's that's fantastic. I look, I can appreciate uh, going through a process and uh identifying yourself in uh in the midst of that process and then finding out for one reason or another that um that you know at the end of the day might have to you know regroup (laughs) i can appreciate that very much (laughs) what did scott fitzgerald say there are no at second acts or there are second acts i don't know (laughs) see that's we've got to figure it out okay okay uh, very good well thank you so much for coming by hey thanks for having me really appreciate it's been a pleasure all right have a good day